according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are returning once again to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 10, related to the suicide of Judas Iscariot. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. This is episode 30 in the uh, present section of the Harmony of the Gospels. You recall we're using a Harmony of the Gospels that we're adapting from uh, a couple of different sources, actually. And uh, uh, it's broken down into different segments for the uh, periods of Christ's life, like the Galilean ministry, for example, or the the last Judean and Perean ministry, for example. Uh, The section we're in presently is uh, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. And it takes us up through the crucifixion itself. Uh, and then uh, the numbers will start over again when we move to the next section uh, that deals with the resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ. Following his resurrection, he has 40 days of, uh, of ministry before his uh, ascension. And uh, so those episodes will be, uh, the, the numbering on that restarts again back at episode 1, episode 2, so forth. So this is episode 30 in the uh, final week of work at Jerusalem that started with... Uh, uh, well, the events one week ago, last Saturday, as uh, he was in the home of, of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and getting ready for uh, the, the final assignment that he had in, uh, in Jerusalem itself. All right, Matthew 27, verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the uh, temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the uh, pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. There's another reason also that we learn about in the book of Acts. There's two reasons why it's called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. All right, Jeremiah is cited while Zechariah is quoted, and we will discuss the, uh, the nature of this fulfilled prophecy out of Zechariah 11.13. When we reach that far. So far, we're still dealing with issues of repentance and regret. So we're looking at the term in verse 3 that said, He felt remorse. He felt remorse. All right? Isn't that special? (laughs) He felt remorse. Okay. Well, let's uh, open with a word of prayer and uh, ask the Father to bless our thinking and to guide our study today. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together. We ask for your hand and blessing upon our time, Father. We pray that you would bless these brothers and sisters that have um, set apart this time as a priority, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear, a heart to obey. And Father, uh, allow for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to overcome any human weaknesses on the part of the hearers and the part of the speakers. Any uh, stupid things the speaker might say, Father, and mispronouncing certain words or making up words, Father, uh, don't allow that to be a hindrance to our spiritual growth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Found out that I made up a word on Sunday. So that's all right. We can coin words. We'll just have to fix that next Sunday when we return back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. All right. We're dealing with uh, regret, and regret is not repentance. If you missed last week, that's the main point. There's a difference between repentance and regret. There's a difference between metanoeo and metamelamai. And if you confuse the two, you're in for all kinds of trouble because we are expected to repent. We are commanded to repent. More often than not, when the repentance imperatives come in Scripture, they're being addressed to believers rather than unbelievers. And so repentance is a facet of our Christian walk. We are to have a change of thinking as the Word of God renews us in the spirit of our thinking uh, and uh, in different applications there. 
So uh, it's important that we understand these terms. Now, what about regret? Are we supposed to have regrets? Uh, will there be times in our life that we do have regrets? And if so, is that right? Is that wrong? Or is it neither right or wrong? Is it, is it just a reality that we've got to deal with when we have things that we regret? All right. How do we approach each of these particular subjects? So in the outline, we've dealt with Judas the betrayer under main point one and took you through uh, the different uh, applications related to paradidomy and the vocabulary for uh, betrayal, the vocabulary to hand over. And uh, the subpoints there in points A, B, C, D, and E. I won't uh, return through those this morning. We move on then to main point two, which I'm going to guess. Good guess. Slide number five. Main point two, Judas felt remorse and returned his reward. Judas felt remorse, remorse and returned his reward. So does this make it all better? Does this solve the problem? If you feel bad about something, does that, uh, does that then remedy whatever it is that you did? Or if you apologize for it, does that make it go away? Or if, can you, is there some way that you can make up for it? Can you, uh, can you return, like he's trying to do here, return the money and kind of undo what was done? Uh, why is it that human beings operating under guilt feel compelled to try to undo something or try to do something or try to fix something? Let's sew some fig leaves together. Let's try to uh, make up for the fact that we're naked. And uh, as if being naked is the problem. No, being naked isn't the problem. God designed you naked. The problem is you sinned. You rebelled. You ate the fruit you weren't supposed to eat from the tree you weren't supposed to eat from. Uh, nevertheless, guilt um, wants to do something. All right. And it's important, I think, that we uh, that we identify with this. So uh, under this, then, again, just like with point one, we've got A, B, C, D and E. Identify that this is not a repentance passage. This is not repentance. Judas never did repent. Uh, the verb for repentance is metanoeo. The noun for repentance is metanoia. And we do not have either in this passage. Judas did not repent. Uh, additional studies could be done on that, but uh, we're going to let that go for this morning. Understand, though, repentance is a thinking activity. It is a change of thinking. As such, it is a function of the mentality facet of the soul. It is not a function of the emotional facet of the soul. How do you define the human soul? Mentality, emotions, conscience, self-conscience, volition. You have the capacities of soul that every human being is designed with. All right? So try to separate out. It might be tough. Okay? Um, because we live in a, in a, in a uh, I don't know, a touchy-feely kind of generation, all right? Repentance is not an emotional activity. It is driven by the mentality facet of the soul, not the emotional facet of the soul. Now, can there be emotions along with the repentance? Of course, there can be emotions along with the repentance. But it's understand what's in the driver's seat and what's in the passenger seat when it comes to these activities. The term for regret we gave you in our subpoint B, that this is our verb metamelami. I did repair the Strong's number that was identified as being uh, incorrect. <laughs> repaired it on the slideshow. I didn't re repair it on paper yet, so we'll do that. Um, six uses of metamelami. And metamelami is an emotional term. Metamelami is uh, an aspect of um, an emotional response to a past decision that now um, you're wishing you hadn't made, or now you're wishing you'd have done it differently, or now you're wishing that you could undo something that's been done, or redo it, or somehow change something that, that now you're not happy with how it turned out. Maybe you're happy about doing it, but you're not happy about how it turned out, or, you, or there were results that you weren't, didn't expect, or the unintended consequences that came along with the activity. Okay, the, uh, Regret can take uh, several different facets in that regard. There's also an adjective that negates this, and it's, it's uh, an interesting one that we'll look at here again this morning uh, from 2 Corinthians 7.11, and that's the phrase, ah, metamalatos, that means without regret. That means the guilt-free, no, no regret, uh, repentance that takes place there as the Holy Spirit convicts. And there can be sorrow without regret. And that's where sometimes we struggle because maybe we equate the two. We think that regret means I'm, sorrow, I'm full of sorrow. But Paul caused sorrow, and yet that sorrow produced a repentance without regret. So we realize in that chapter that there's a difference between having sorrow and regretting something. 
And we don't always distinguish properly. I think sometimes we lump them all together. We say, well, it's the same thing. If, I'm, if I regret something, that means I'm sorry about it. Or I have sorrow because of it. No, they're really separate issues. And you can have sorrow, godly sorrow, sorrow according to the will of God, we're told, that produces the repentance without regret. And hopefully we can identify that, that we can have a godly sorrow and, and embrace that sorrow. You don't have to confess that sorrow because it's a sorrow he's given you. It's a sorrow you're supposed to learn from. It's a sorrow you accept. See, And don't confess that. It's not a sin to have the emotion that God provided for you. When he provided it for you in his will to spark a change of thinking or a, um, a response that we see there. Okay? And so this is the terminology. What we see here is not repentance. It's not metanoeo. It's metamelami. And uh, that's the whole point of this, of this segment. The repentance without regret is featured in 2 Corinthians. So let's look at that. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. And we see that this is only one item in a package. In a, in a bundle, as it were, right? When they bundle your phone and your internet and your cable. And you ask yourself, do I really need this great big bundle? Um, well, here's a bundle. okay, And it's a good bundle. It's a bundle that uh, really was quite a uh, turning point for the believers in Corinth <laughs> that had previously been schismatic. They'd previously been uh, full of, uh, of, uh, of fighting against one another and, and competing against one another and flagrant um, carnality under the guise of grace, okay? different ways that they had abused grace. So we read Second uh, Corinthians 7, verse 11. Uh, behold, what earnestness this is very. Th- I better back up. The uh, he talks about causing them sorrow uh, with a letter, and it's neat when we look at verse eight because not only do we see the uh, the sorrow that he caused, but we also see metamelema. We see the term regret. He says, "Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it." So it was a period of time where Paul had a regret, and then he stopped it. He ended that regret. Okay, he ended the regret when he realized what the, the benefit of this sorrow was going to be. So, uh, I do not regret it. Not now, though I did, at one point, regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So, because he was the, the, the source of that sorrow to these believers when they read that tough letter, he had a moment where he regretted it, and then he stopped. He says, now I rejoice. (laughs) So how about an opposite of regret, right? Rejoice. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, because that's not the goal. It's a means to an end, but it's not the end. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, metanoia. See, so it's a, it's a good passage. It goes well with what we're looking at today in, in Matthew 27. It works well as a contrast between metanoeo and, and metamelami. Uh, Paul talks, confesses his own regrets and then how he stomps down those regrets. And then he talks about their repentance. And it's a repentance without regret. So you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So sorrow can be, not always, but can be according to the will of God. At which point, do you confess it as if it's a sin? In your, in your prayer life, do you go to the Heavenly Father and say, Dear Father, I, um, I confess to you, I'm, I'm, I'm sorrowful. Is that a sin you've got to confess? Okay. Not if it's sorrow according to the will of God. Not if it's sorrow in, in agreement with the things that God has sorrow over. God has sorrow over many things. Does he have to confess himself? No. <laughs> it's not sin. Okay, let's, let's not, I think there's a, there's a dangerous approach that filters into some attitudes. And I, and I confess, I had it, I grew up with this. I grew up with uh, the idea that, you know, any kind of emotional expression, well, that's just emotional revolt of the soul. That's just reactor factors. Go on, get doctrine, grow up, get over it. All right, and wait a minute. There's a sorrow that's according to the will of God. Uh, Jesus said that his soul was grieved to the point of death. And he wasn't carnal in Gethsemane. He had the, the pinnacle of intimacy with God the Father at that moment. So, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. That's verse 10. It produces a uh, metanoia 
that is a metamaleta. Okay, did I say that right? That's a metamaletas. That term that we had under point B. It produces a metanoia that is a metamaletas. No regrets. No regrets. And that's that's a beautiful thing. When God's at work in your life, when God's at work, when His Word is transforming your thinking, and you're truly accepting it for what it is, and you're truly your thinking has changed, and you're ready now to move forward, it is a freedom. It is a freedom for believers that can appreciate that God loves us enough to change us that way. <laughs> God loves us enough to not keep us where we were, but to change our thinking so that moving forward we produce even greater glory, produce even greater fruit. And we don't spend our time navel-gazing or, or, or we don't spend our time um, you know, with, with these regrets of looking back and guilt and wondering and, and all of the hindsight of, of, uh, of, oh, I feel terrible and, oh, I used to have this thinking and, oh, I used to do this and, oh, I used to do this, used to do this. Okay? No. Just thank God that the used-to-dos are now done because the change of thinking has you now moving forward in a different direction. And so it's a repentance without regret. We don't kill ourselves with guilt over our past failures. You know, man, you got, you got enough time? We can stay here till midnight. I'll tell you all my past failures. Okay? No time for that. There's no point in that. We're forgetting what lies behind. Repentance without regret. My thinking is not what it was 20 years ago. Okay? Or 20 days ago. Or 20 minutes ago. I mean, continuously. What are we doing? We're, we're being renewed. We're moving forward. And we can thank Him for that. A repentance without regret. Leading to salvation. Is that type 1, type 2, or type 3? Okay. It's type 2. Salvation. Not, not an unbeliever receiving eternal life, but a believer who the next time that temptation snare comes along, he's going to have victory. doesn't matter if he's had 15 failures in a row in the past. The next time that temptation hits him, because this change of thinking was produced by the Father, the next time that, that temptation hits him, the salvation is there. The Word of God is able to save you. Say, with humility, receive the Word of God implanted, which is able to save your soul. And so there it is. But the sorrow of the world produces death. If, uh, if you're responding to uh, the cosmos production of sorrow, which is nothing about tearing you down and killing you with guilt and, and, and trying to make, up, make amends, trying to, trying to uh, somehow uh, pay a penance because I'm so sorry over what I've done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to work to make it better. I'm going to work to, to, uh, to recompense what I've done. I'm going to return my 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to sow fig leaves. Or I'm going to do whatever. What does that really produce? Does that solve your carnality problem? It actually plunges you into even deeper carnality problems. It actually plunges you into, into worse cycles of human effort and works. Certainly not motivated by the Holy Spirit. You're listening to some other spirit. So where's the reward in that? Alright, so repentance without regret is featured in 2 Corinthians. Sorrow according to the will of God produces this and a package of additional attitudes for divine good production. Look what else comes with this. Earnestness, we're told in verse 11. What earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. So in addition to the repentance without regret, it also produces an earnestness. It also produces a vindication, a legitimate vindication, not the human self-justification and so forth, uh, but a legitimate vindication, leaving yourself in the Lord's hands. The Lord's the one. He's the one. Vengeance is His. That's my vindication. What indignation. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrate yourself to be innocent in the matter. That's why I say it's freedom. There's no more power over you. There's no more... Um, see, Satan's got a huge power over believers when they're terrified that certain things are going to be found out. That, oh, well, what if, what if you know, they find this out about my past? What if my church finds out? What if my pastor finds out? What if my wife finds out? What if my children find out? What if, you know, and there's, all the, and there's a power over you, a fear. That, well, you know, don't rock the boat. Do what I say. Go along or you wouldn't want this to, you wouldn't want this to come out, would you? And think about the, uh, the power that holds over believers sometimes for years. Years and years and years. They're living with the shame of something that uh, 
We should just have the freedom to let it go. Repentance without regret. All right. And point D, tears don't count. <laughs> All right. Tears don't count. Hebrews twelve seventeen. Emotional responses and pleas are irrelevant to the spiritual realities we operate under. Emotional responses and pleas. Oh, oh, daddy, dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. Please don't ground me. Please don't. All right. Don't take away my car. Don't take away my phone. Don't take away my... Uh, I want to go to this dance. I want to, you know... Okay. Any illustrations are purely fiction. No actual historical persons or events are featured in this message. Oh, I, could, I don't need to use my own kids for illustrations. I'll, I'll tell my own stories now that mom's in heaven. <clears throat> I, I spent more time grounded than ungrounded, I think, in my high school years. Hebrews 12, 17. And the best part is, is my nemesis, my sister, who always seemed to be the agent of getting me grounded. Um, <laughs> no, I love her. I love her. She's probably listening to this message. I think, I think she follows life of Christ uh, in any event. No, I love her. I should have been, I should have been grounded more than I was. All right, but here's the, uh, here's the example of Esau. And it says, um, backing up to verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it. And that's, that's experiential sanctification, by the way. Okay? And that's not uh, the positional sanctification, uh, sanctification of getting saved. Hebrews is written to believers. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. This is phase two, not phase one. Remember, we're not worried about all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we're past that. We're saved. We're born again. He's given us His glory. He's given us His righteousness. It's been imputed to our account. So that's a falling short that no longer, no longer bothers me. Okay? I, can, I, can, I can use the Pharisee line, uh, what is that to me? Uh, you know, when, they're, when they're rejecting the, the 30 pieces of silver, they said, what is that to us? Okay? That all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, what is that to us? Okay? We're redeemed. We are in His glory. We are in His righteousness. I'm no longer concerned about that. This, however, is a falling short that does concern me. And it concerns me for my own sake, my own walk, my family, my marriage. It concerns me for my flock. I want believers in my congregation to not fall short of grace. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. So get it at the root. Get it before it springs up. Root it out early, as early as you can. As soon as you identify that it's buried, and maybe it's buried deep, I don't care how deep, root it out. Because as soon as it surfaces, as soon as it's sprouted forth and you can visibly see it, you know how much damage it's already done? And by it, many be defiled. You're not going to only hurt yourself in this. It's going to have consequences in your marriage, in your family, in your church. And that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Really? A Christian could be immoral? A Christian could be godless? Mm -hmm. Who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, he desired to inherit the blessing, and yet without repentance. What does that tell you? People will want things, but on their terms, not God's. They will want things, but in their way. Okay? Yeah. The blessings of, uh, of the Abrahamic covenant? You bet. Who wouldn't want that? But in God's terms? No. I want it my way. You know, it's, it's no different than Cain bringing his vegetables. Can we approach God on our terms and our way and, and demand that he, that he must be satisfied with what I can do? Why would he be satisfied with what I can do? He was satisfied with what his son did. Nothing else is going to measure up to his standard of perfection. 
He found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Oh, I mean, look how sincere he is, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously he means it. Obviously he's, he's, isn't he broken and humble and contrite? Look, he's crying. Well, what does that mean? A lot of things can motivate crying. Legitimate and illegitimate. I mean, tears can be sparked from all kinds of things. But is there a change of thinking? And just, a, just an emotional response. That's not adequate. That's not sufficient. Likewise, what's the, what's the flip side of this? Not on the screen, but just think with me here. If, if, if emotions minus the repentance is not adequate, what about repentance without the emotions? Do you, in other words, should we require that there be some kind of an emotional response? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> there may or may not be sorrow. There may or may not be emotions. And some may be more emotional, some may be less emotional. And if we're going to use the emotion scale as a litmus test, then we're, we're back to the relativism again. Uh, no different than the other human experience. All right? Hopefully that makes sense. Let's not confuse the emotional responses. Let's not confuse the pleas. Uh, it's going to be a test then on our, on our behalf. Okay? How would the prodigal's father have responded if the prodigal had not been repentant? What if all he had was regrets? What if all he had was tears? What might the father have responded then? Okay? It's not fair. I'm asking a what-if question, and we don't know. But, um, but I can surmise. I can imagine based upon what we do know about the Father's character, about the Father's maturity, and, and his ability to rebuke his older son. I, I believe he could have just as well rebuked his younger son. All right. Tears don't count. Finally, guilt motivates doing something. Genesis 3.7, Luke 15.19. I think when I teased you on this, I only had the Luke Genesis reference. I didn't have the Luke reference. That's something that got added between last week and this week. But Genesis 3.7, you know, we, this, this guilt that motivates doing something. Starting with hiding. <laughs> and then fig leaves. And then excuse making. Look at all the things that are motivated by guilt. Remarkably enough, uh, the woman's eyes were not open when she ate the fruit. The woman did not become spiritually dead when she ate the fruit. Because she ate the fruit in verse 6. And then she gave also to her husband and he ate also in verse 6. And it's not until he ate that the eyes of both of them were opened in verse 7. See that? The man is the accountable member of this stewardship. He's the federal head of the human race. She's under his sovereignty. He falls, she falls. We're all in Adam. All right. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Well, who told them to do that? What gave them that idea? Why? Whatever impelled that? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Why? What motivated that? <laughs> uh, kind of gives you the clue right away that they weren't very confident in the, uh, in the, the fig leaf activity. <laughs> you know? Uh, not only does it motivate doing something, but then you're left wondering, well, was that sufficient? Is that going to cut it? And uh, one verse later they said, you know, we're not really impressed with uh, what these fig leaves are doing. Let's, let's hide. <laughs> okay. And uh, then the Lord God called to the man. Not to the man and the woman. The man. 
Okay, who's the accountable party? If, if an entire church is messed up, does he address the entire church or does he address the angel of the church of Ephesus right? To the messenger of the church of, of Thyatira right? He goes to the accountable party. You know, where does the buck stop? Deal with it. He said to the man, where are you? <laughs> Is he clueless? Is he lost? Is he ignorant? No. He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking, providing the man his own opportunity to confess. Providing the man his own opportunity uh, for repentance. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Is he, is he still naked? I thought they clothed themselves. Look at that. Yeah, it says he clothed, they clothed themselves. Made for themselves loin coverings. But in verse 10 he says, we're still naked. <laughs> so we hid. Who told you you were naked? Who said that? What is guilt motivating? All right. Well, you've got to do something. And I find it remarkable. Um, unbelievers, atheists, militant atheists, they, they deny God, they hate the God they deny, but they still have something within them called conscience, this facet of the human soul. They still have some intrinsic recognition that they want to be a good person or they want to do good things or that they're better than other people uh, or whatever. Okay? Or that you are somehow bad for uh, the attitude you have against them. Right? How dare you judge what I'm doing? That, that your judgmentalism is wrong of their whatever. Okay? Well, why do you hold to a right and wrong standard? And what's the basis for that standard? What's the, what's the absolute grounding uh, for that standard? On atheism, there is no ground for an absolute right versus wrong. All right, don't get me going on that. Uh, Luke 15. Luke 15, 19. Here's another example. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And this is the prodigal. Now, I do believe that he has a legitimate repentance. But I also believe that along with that is this guilt that says, I want to do something. Okay? And uh, so he comes up with this scheme and, uh, well, you see where it's getting him. Um, he, he, uh, he takes his share of the estate. He wants his uh, inheritance early. Okay? <laughs> As if, you know, somehow we can pre-schedule when, when our parents die and just go ahead and take, uh, take what your net worth will be at that time and I'll take my cash settlement now. Um, kind of a thing. All right. How morbid is that? You know? <laughs> We, when we got mom's urn, we uh, had inscribed on there the different inscriptions and stuff and her date of birth and date of death and so forth. But we got the companion urns, you know, so we were actually already possess one for dad. Uh, but, but I assured him that we didn't pre-engrave it. We didn't, uh, you know, schedule the, the date that we were going to intend to bump them off or anything related to, <laughs> related to that. All right. Um, no, I'm not in a hurry to uh, collect my share of the estate. But he was, and he took it on a cash settlement, and he departed. And before you know it, it's gone. And uh, he had spent everything. He had spent everything. Is all income supposed to be consumable? You know, uh, what do you, is all income supposed to be spent, or is some of it, you know, what do you do with it? Anyway, he spent it all. And then a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went, got to do something. Okay? And all of these efforts to do something rather than repent. It's not until he comes to his senses that he then uh, returns. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him in his fields to feed swine. So things are just getting worse. All right? Swine are an unclean animal. You know, he's, dealing, he's, he's living among pagans. He's living in a region and, and, and exposed to all kinds of defilements. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the paws that the swine were eating. Well, why didn't he? And no one was giving anything to him. They were watching him 
and uh, making sure he wasn't stealing their food and he couldn't afford much based on the salary he was getting there. But verse 17, when he came to his senses, and I love that. I love that because I think that that's, a, that's an idiom, that's a phrase that goes well with uh, insanity. Okay, The idea that uh, your repentance, if you're not... If you're not in the will of God, where are you? <laughs> yeah, anywhere you are attitudinally that requires repentance is insane. At its core, why are you defying the, the living God? How insane is that? Okay. So, he came to a census and said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. Now, here's where he's partly right, partly wrong. I do accept that there's a legitimate repentance because we're told he's come to his senses. But with that, he's partly wrong because look what he's going to try to do. He still wants to do something. He still wants to do something. So he says, um, I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. That's a legitimate confession. He, he could stop right there if he wanted I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay, well, whether true or not, it's irrelevant. Because he is the son. Whether he's worthy to be called it or not, it doesn't change the reality that he is a son. Make me as one of your hired men. And there's where he's completely wrong. But it does reflect this desire, I believe, motivated by guilt, this, this impulse to do something. Okay. And so it's interesting. He's, he's rehearsed this speech, right? How many times do you rehearse a speech before a, a job interview or before a whatever? Okay? I think I proposed 200 times before I, you know, proposed verbally, out loud, you know, where human ears could hear. Okay? Because you, you want to rehearse it. You want to, you know, you don't want to sound stupid. You want, you want it to come out right and... and uh, in that. And, and, and what I love about this, this is why I say the father here is just a, a, an amazing believer. He got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off. Now, this is our role when we are observing a, a brother repent or we're observing uh, the restoration of, of somebody from church discipline to the fellowship of the assembly or any, any application similar. Um, the father... Um, didn't didn't leave his own property. The father didn't travel to the foreign land. The father didn't go visit the pig farm or, or anything of that nature. Okay, I wonder how the older brother got all his intelligence reports. Where did he learn about these harlots and 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 the, you know? Did he have connections in those lands too? Makes me wonder. But he is watching from a distance. He has a heart that's waiting for that son to return, and he's seeing with uh, you know. That had binoculars back then, he probably would have used those too. Um, watching from a distance. And I like that. And, um, and he cuts him off too. And he starts in his re rehearsed speech. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So is there a place for compassion? Of course. Of course there is a place for compassion. But can compassion be exercised in place of repentance, instead of repentance, if there is no repentance? Can compassion take the place of application of doctrine, for example? No. God can be compassionate towards us. He can be gracious towards us. Why? Because his righteousness and his justice are satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. Without Calvary, God can be eternally compassionate and unable to save any of us. Because compassion cannot trump Righteousness and justice and God's eternal standards. He can't compromise himself. Same thing here. Yes, the Father has compassion. But it's not, uh, it's not instead of. Okay? And this is where parents spoil their kids. This is where parents fail to discipline. This is where parents compromise because of their compassion, because they love their kids. And so they make excuses or they tolerate or they... they um, and as soon as you do that, you're, you're validating it. You're sanctioning it. And, and the activity is what it is. And there it goes. And uh, when the child learns they can manipulate the compassion and, and not change their thinking, 
then uh, what are they going to do? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Again, any illustrations are all... You know, this is probably the biggest drawback to not owning a dog. I could, I could discuss dog training, right? Or, or newspapers or swatting a nose or rubbing a nose in something. If I use dog illustrations, then maybe um, my own offspring would not be so mortified at different things. All right. Well, notice now, he gets into his, into his um, rehearsed speech, and the father cuts him off. And, and I love this. He, he says, Father, I have sinned, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, notice that the father just cuts him off. He's not even allowed to finish the final little phrase that, where he goes, you know, make me as one of your hired men. He doesn't get that far. The father stopped him with that, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Because right there, you're going off the rails. It's not about worthiness. Okay? It's about reality. I'm not worthy to be a son of God the Father. Of course not. But I am a son of God the Father. Why? Not my worthiness. It's His grace. That's the, that's the beauty of positional truth in sonship. That, that you never lose that. You lose fellowship. You never lose relationship. So there we have it. All right, guilt motivates doing something. Now, point three then. Judas went away and hanged himself. Judas went away and hanged himself. Now, we're going to have to take verse five and harmonize it with Acts 1:18. <clears throat> and we have no problem doing that. Some people envision that this is a contradiction and you can't reconcile. I have no problem reconciling these. What's the, what's the contradiction? But Matthew says he went away and hanged himself. Doesn't say from a tree, doesn't say from a bridge, doesn't say from a temple, high place, doesn't say from where. We assume it's a tree. Um, part of our reconciliation uh, suppositions, but it doesn't truly really matter. Although I think it is kind of interesting that <clears throat> Judas hung on a tree before Jesus did. Okay, if it was in fact a tree. I think whatever it was he hung himself from, uh, either the branch broke or the rope broke or something broke. Because what happens then is uh, he falls, his insides burst asunder. We've got more gruesome details that show up in Acts chapter 1. But he went away and hanged himself. So what else can he do? He returned the money. What else can he do? Well, at some point in human hopelessness under satanic whisperings, there's, there's nothing else you can do. It's the only solution. There's no hope. There's no way out. Every, you know, the world will be better without me. Okay? And uh, the, here's the best solution. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, my kids can have a real father instead of this loser. My wife can have a better husband. The church can get a real pastor. There's, there's, you know, it's just as long as I'm here, I'm just making a big mess of everything anyway. And, uh, uh, man, all the destruction. I'd be better, they would be better if, uh, if, 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 uh, if I was dead. Okay? Plus, the church gets a million bucks. Okay? Or 600,000. 600, <coughs> the, um, the bank required us to take out this insurance policy before they funded the, the building of this building. They were terrified that, that uh, they would fund this new building and then, and then I would drop dead and the church would collapse or whatever. And um, so part of their worldly standards, they, um, they forced this, uh, this insurance policy on me, which they then owned during the time. Well, guess what? They don't own it anymore. We, we paid off that mortgage. So we don't. We're debt free. We don't need the six hundred grand to pay off the to pay off the or million dollars, whatever it ended up being, pay, to pay off the um, construction. Yeah. So now, guess what? Deacons are drooling, thinking, "Hey, we just bumped this guy out now." Starting to get nervous. 
I asked him, there's this hatch up here on the platform, and I thought that's where they're going to just bury me into the platform. When the, that's what the hatch is there for. All right. Um, suicide. Is that the answer? Is that, is that, do I accomplish anything in that? Okay. What am I achieving? Well, what else is there to do? So he went away and he hanged himself. And uh, he beats the Lord by 30 verses. Uh, because uh, the Lord doesn't get hung until verse 35. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Place of a skull. So the Aramaic and its translation, uh, the, the Latin Vulgate, thanks to Jerome and the Roman Church, calls this Calvarius, place of a skull. That's where we get the name Calvary. Calvary is not in the Bible, but there in the Latin text. Um, and they gave him wine to drink, mixed with gall. After tasting, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, so there he's crucified in verse 35. They divided up his garments among them and they cast lots. So he's hung in verse 35 and uh, Judas beats him by 30 verses because he hangs himself in verse 5. Okay? Hanged, not hung. I misspoke. Try to be careful with that. The book of Acts provides additional gory detail. Acts 1, verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> what is it? Drapes are hung, but people are hanged. Okay. Acts 1, 18 and 19. See, ever since Linty started attending here, I had to be very careful about my proper English. The Americans and the British separated by a common language. All right, Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts provides additional gory detail. Acts 1, and specifically verses 18 and 19. We'll get a little bit wider context on this. And then this is uh, before the church. It's vital we identify this. Pentecost isn't until Acts 2. Church age does not begin until Acts 2. But they had to replace the 12th apostle in Acts 1. There are 12 apostles of the Lamb. There are 12 apostles whose names will be written on the foundation stones of the, of the New Jerusalem. And apostles of the Lamb are different from church age apostles like Paul and Barnabas and James. Okay? And the 12. The apostles of the Lamb are both apostles of the Lamb and church age apostles. Okay? So Peter, James, Andrew... They're apostles of the Lamb because they were apostles during the stewardship of Israel before the day of Pentecost. And so, verse 15 says, At this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So they recognized this as fulfillment of Scripture, fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. He acquired a field. That is, the money that he earned by his betrayal was used to purchase that potter's field. Judas himself didn't live long enough to see it and he didn't own it. We don't have any problem with that idiom. This man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. Uh, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Yuck. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Wouldn't you know it, the very field where he chose to go out and hang himself was the very field which the, the high priest purchased to be the, uh, the burial plot for the strangers. How's that for a coincidence? Okay. <laughs> Not coincidence. Well, it's sovereignty, right? Calvinist luck. It's the sovereignty of God related to uh, these things coming together. You know, who would have thought that the, the, uh, the mountain that Abraham off, uh, almost sacrificed Isaac on would thousand years later become the, or two thousand years later become the, the Temple Mount, or a thousand years later become the Temple Mount. All right, no coincidence. So it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. 
for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, let another man take his office. Okay? In those corny email jokes about the presidential election, you know, let another man take his office. Okay? They make for corny email jokes, but the application is not United States American politics. It's a recognition that a traitor held an office that had to be replaced. And so they're going to replace it. It is necessary. It's a have to of the men who accomplish. Why is it necessary? Because it's prophesied the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones that will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Lord had a message for them in the, in the Olivet Discourse. It is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. Now, how many were there? Evidently, there were several. Not only the twelve. Several. There's two that are listed here. They put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. All right. Matthias is the one they select. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. I find this remarkable because um, some people are very critical of this and some people reject this. And they say, No, Matthias was not a legitimate apostle. Paul was the twelfth apostle. They have this theology that, or this tradition that makes uh, Paul the twelfth apostle and so forth. Well, know what these men thought. <laughs> okay? And they went to the Lord in prayer and they drew lots. And from this day forward, he was added to the eleven, and never again do we have the, the Hendeka terminology. We have the Dodeca terminology from this point forward. They're always called the twelve for the rest of the book of Acts. They're called the twelve. Now, I'll tease you with a verse I don't totally understand. It says, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside... To go to his own place. That's a puzzle. That's a mystery. That's a mystery. Where did he go? Talking about the field? Talking about a suicide? Or where did he go after he died? And what's his own place? And there's, there's things there that I want to explore down the road. I know a lot, of, a lot of things have been done with that related to some pretty extraordinary things. <clears throat> talking about the abyss and talking about Antichrist and the different theories that that uh, the beast is the, the one who was and is not and is to come and so forth related to uh, the two people called sons of perdition, that his place is the place of perdition. In any event, um, I'm not yet prepared to teach such with conviction. Let's just leave it at this. He's dead. <laughs> All right, he's dead. He's uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, uh, and uh, now he's dead. Which brings us to the blood money, point four. Blood money was a problem. Blood money was a problem. And this is why hypocrisy is always a problem. This is why compromise is not a solution. One compromise will always lead to the next. And hypocrisy leads to more hypocrisy, to, to cover up for the first hypocrisy. <laughs> lies have to be expanded with more lies. Um, darkness only leads to more darkness. And so now they're in this conundrum. And it's interesting, but if you go back to the, uh, it's not too far back, you go back to the, uh, to the bargain in chapter 26. And uh, it's evidently, it's, it's nighttime. Evidently, it's private. It's, it's, um, uh, he, was, he was angry over the costly perfume the night before. Um, he thought it was a waste, and he was really upset because he was counting on that money that he was stealing from. And then in, in 26.14, Judas goes to the chief priests and said, what will you give me? What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And everything in that chapter, we, we're not told that there was a crowd. We're not told what time of day it is. We're not told maybe some of the information. But we can envision 
because he had gone out at night, angry about the anointing of the oil, that this was probably done under darkness. It was probably done at night. We know when he left the upper room to go fetch the soldiers, he did it at night. And so, in any event, I suspect it was rather private. And whether it was or it wasn't, this is very public. What's happening here in chapter 27, you understand they, 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 they had gathered the whole Sanhedrin together before the sun came up. Everybody's here. There's slaves that are here. There's servants that are here. There's soldiers that are here. There's, there's all kinds of people that are here. And... Uh, I'm guessing John is still here. Peter's not. Peter went out crying with the, with the rooster crowing. But I suspect John's still here observing this. And he comes in in front of everybody. Because remember, they waited for the sun to come up. They had to have a legal assembly. They convicted him and they sent him packing. And soldiers and, and Jesus are now en route to, to Pontius Pilate. But these chief priests are still here. They're in the temple. And Judas comes in in front of everybody, admits uh, his role in the, in the uh, betrayal. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And so their denial, what is that to us? <laughs> what are you talking about, right? What is that to us? Who are you? What is that to us? See to that yourself. So he throws the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. You know, you can imagine flinging through the open door or something. And he departs. Now, <laughs> you understand the embarrassment factor? <laughs> you know, here's these chief priests. They're kind of standing there. Everybody's looking at them. And they know what the money is. Most of them. A lot of them probably. All right. But maybe there's some there that don't. I mean, was it all 70 that agreed to the 30 pieces of silver? Some of them don't. And these coins are just laying there on the, on the temple floor. Well, who's going to pick those up? <laughs> what are we going to do about that? What was that scene all about? Okay. So uh, now they're in a dilemma. The chief priest took the pieces of silver. They said, well, what do we do with these? It's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. We can't accept this. We can't accept this. And they're right. The, the law prohibits it. Their own traditions prohibit it. Uh, they, they are not allowed to accept it. It cannot become a donation to the temple. Because it's blood money. The price of blood. Never mind the fact that they're the ones that paid it. Now, see, that's what makes this whole thing so hypocritical. Makes the whole thing so ironic. They're the ones that paid it. <laughs> it wasn't legal to pay it either. It wasn't, it wasn't lawful. It wasn't compatible with the law of Moses to pay uh, a traitor to lie or to pay a traitor to, uh, to organize the ambush or the arrest. Is that Mosaic law? So why is it that they pick and choose when they want to be observant and when they get around it, okay? And let me tell you something. We'll, we'll deal with this next week because I'm out of time. But this, this hits all of us. Do you and I ever have opportunities where we pick and choose when it's convenient to do what the Bible says versus when I want to do what I want to do? And... <laughs> You know, if, if you're in the leadership, like the religious leaders here, okay, how do you hypocritically deal with that? How do you hold your children to a standard that you yourself don't hold? Or if you're a husband, how do you expect your wife will be, um, will be walking according to Scripture when you're not? And you get all, you know, submit to me, woman. The Bible says submit. Well, what are you doing in the will of God? Are you submitting as unto the Lord? The husband's got a submission imperative also. There's a one another reciprocal submission that's, that's commanded there as well. And then there's the sacrificial love. Are you applying that? 
So if we're going to pick and choose what's lawful, what's biblical, shall we say, we're not under law, but we are under Scripture, are we going to pick and choose when we're going to be biblically observant versus defiant and just do what we want to do? Well, that's trouble. So we'll deal with that. Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together today. Thank you for the, um, the blessings we have to, to learn these principles and to make application. We thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.